Hello there. Welcome to the latest episode of Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald. I'm a former director of public prosecutions and a barrister at Matrix Chambers. And with me, Tim Owen. I'm also a barrister at Matrix Chambers, specialising in public law, criminal law and human rights law. In this episode, Ken and I decided to do something a little different. Instead of covering a range of current legal issues with a guest, we decided to focus on a single issue, the so-called small boats crisis. That shorthand for the phenomenon of significant numbers of people making the short dangerous voyage from France across the English Channel to beaches on Britain's Kent coast with a view to claiming asylum in the UK. In 2022, it's estimated that some 45,000 people crossed the Channel in small motorised dinghies arranged by criminal gangs of people traffickers. And to guide us through the legal aspects of what's become a major political crisis for the government, our guest is the retired High Court judge, Sir Nicholas Blake. Nick's a very old friend of both Ken and me. All of us began our legal careers at different times in Garden Court Chambers, and we reunited as founder members of Matrix Chambers in 2000. In 2007, Nick was appointed to the High Court bench, and between 2010 and 2013, he was the president of the Immigration and Asylum Chamber of the Upper Tribunal. Before becoming a judge, Nick's specialist practice was in public law, with particular focus on immigration, asylum, free movement and human rights law, and he appeared in most of the leading cases in that field. Together with Ian MacDonald, Nick was the author of Immigration Law and Practice, the Bible for all practitioners, students and judges keen to understand the complexities and ever-changing nature of immigration and asylum law. Nick stood down as a High Court judge in 2017, but he remains very active as a member of Matrix Chambers and also as a Judicial Commissioner in the Investigatory Powers Commissioner's Office. That's the judicial body which oversees the use of investigatory powers with a view to ensuring that they are used in accordance with the law and in the public interest. Nick, welcome to Double Jeopardy. Thank you. Nice to join you both. Good to see you, Nick. Nick, let's just start with a few biographical details beyond um, what I've just described to our listeners. Uh, what was it that inspired you to begin with to become a lawyer? Well, I was a historian at a university and uh, I had no uh, legal background in my family or, or, or connections. But um, the history uh, degree that I followed had a paper on theory of the political state, uh, right back from um, Greek philosophers up to um, 20th century. And I found that particularly interesting. Uh, and I have to say, I found that background a better foundation for public law, which I was eventually to practice in, um, than I suspect I would have done if I had got a classical law degree. Um, but I was also interested in the theatre. And my interest in the theatre happened to lead me in July 1969 on a Cambridge University theatre group to apartheid South Africa. And on the night that the Americans landed on the moon, uh, I was in Soweto, a black township outside Johannesburg, uh, performing All's Well That Ends Well. <laughs> Uh, prophetic or otherwise titled, I don't know. Yeah. But as we were pulling down the set and about to go home, this was one church hall, effectively, for a million people, which is the only social facility. People from the Soweto who had been trying to watch the live 
broadcast outside the Johannesburg Observatory were coming home because the police naturally set the Alsatian dogs on them. So their memory of that great night for humanity was torn shirts and bloodied arms. And that made quite a strong impression on me. And I think combined with the events that were going on and the use of the law in the United States at that time, uh, I, I was convinced that there was a role to play to bring theatre and politics together to make a contribution to justice and a more uh, radical contribution than the rather um, slow pace of change in the in the British legal profession had envisaged. So I think those things all came together, really. And as I said in introducing you, you're, you're, you became the sort of leading um, practitioner in immigration and asylum law in the 70s, 80s and 90s, all the way up until you became a High Court judge. And what was it that drew you to that area in particular? Um, yes, well... Um, there's always an element of accident in the way one finds one's feet at the bar in, in practice, but our uh, small chambers were designed to address various aspects of the justice deficit in juvenile justice, in housing, in, in crime, and particularly in terms of the way that the law impacted on um, uh, black people um, and people who didn't have any rights to remain in the United Kingdom. And uh, as you've already mentioned, my colleague Ian MacDonald, the late Ian MacDonald, um, he, he, I inherited, I think, my first immigration cases from him. Uh, and I found great interest in discovering the parts of the world where people had come from. This was a time when we had Commonwealth immigration still, which used to have a common law right of abode, but we had uh, abandoned that and we were then moving to an EU right of abode. Of course, we've recently abandoned that. And so that was um, an interesting start. And it put me in pole position, the Lewis Hamilton position, when uh, suddenly the private profession started to get asylum cases. There were no asylum cases for the private profession in the early 70s, but by 1979-80, a combination of factors had meant that these were challenges that had to be articulated in our courts. Uh, personally, I think uh, one of the factors was uh, the Iranian revolution and middle-class Iranian people who had some funds to go to a lawyer were seeking legal help to claim asylum. And I did a number of cases from that period. It combined with the emerging civil war in Sri Lanka, where a lot of uh, young male Tamils were caught between the Sinhalese government in the south and the Tamil Tigers, a very brutal um, organization fighting for the liberation of the, the, the Tamil part of the island in the north. And that gave rise to a whole host of legal and practical issues, and that set me on my way. I mean, there, I mean, there was there, there was a, a, a really big change, as you say, wasn't it? Because I can remember as a pupil tagging along behind you from time to time when you were going to various immigration hearings out at Heathrow Airport, and the, the, these were to represent people who were almost indigent. I mean, these these people had no money; they were legal aid cases. It was. And the, it's not a terribly fashionable area of law. It was almost seen, I think, as a, an aspect of social welfare law. And then, as you say, suddenly money came into it and other sections of the bar than Garden Court um, began to conceive of an interest in it. And I guess the, one of the results of that was that the law began to develop fairly rapidly. People began to take points and a body of law developed. 
Yes, I mean, the, there were no um, textbooks at all. I don't think um, refugee law was taught at the universities. Um, that there was um, nothing. Uh, indeed, my very first case when I had to argue before a High Court judge uh, whether someone was facing persecution by having to leave their job in um, the capital of Ghana and hide in the in the remote um, village, uh, I just had the dictionary definition of what persecution meant put before the judge. But gradually that built up and gradually I started to write about it. And, and then we developed that um, textbook that you mentioned until that reflected current developments. And the one thing about British lawyers, as you both know, is that um, they will take any good point that is available uh, and, and that gets builds up a, a corpus of uh, legal knowledge in the High Court, largely on somewhat hypothetical facts often, as because Judicial Review dealt with that rather than the challenges to individual factual decisions, until in the 1990s, um, British government had to give general rights of appeal to anyone seeking to claim asylum, uh, which wasn't in existence before. And there were one or two disasters of people who were sent back because they didn't have an appeal right in country. With that background of, of some 50 years of working in this area, as I say, we want to focus today on, on this one issue, the so-called small boats crisis and what legally has been the response so far and what further plans and, and whether they, they will work in, in as uh, the government intends, uh, halting the so-called invasion across the channel, using the term that Suella Braverman has, has used to describe this. Um, so, given your knowledge and experience of this area, is this a genuinely new and dramatic crisis, or is it a classic short-term moral panic which uh, is soon going to be forgotten? Well, it's a new development. People have not taken um, boats and um, inflatables and, uh, and ribs across the Channel, in my experience, until comparatively recently. Um, and I think it's a development for myself, which is a direct consequence of Brexit, because until uh, 2021, um, uh, there was the, the fact that anyone who is coming by small boat would have been either mainly in France, conceivably in a little bit of Belgium, both of which were EU countries with their own asylum procedures and the response um, uh, if they had reached the UK soil, was to send them back under the readmission agreements of which um, the UK was part of. Sometimes they were a bit slow, but otherwise they generally worked and you could work on, on speeding them up. So we didn't really have to decide these cases ourselves because we could always say uh, there is another safe country um, um, a safe third country that will decide whether you are or are not a refugee and we will return you to that country. So so, so to be clear, Nick, a lot, a lot is said, and I think we'll come on to this in, in more detail later, but a, a lot is said about the fact that uh, people who arrive in um, England, the English, on the English coast in small boats, uh, have come through safe countries on the way to England. Um, and that that's uh, an objection that could be taken to their 
arrival here. Now, as you said, under the EU, we had an agreement with EU countries that in those circumstances, people would be returned to the other EU country through which they traveled. But is there any general principle in refugee law that you have to claim asylum in the first safe territory that you find yourself in, having fled the place of oppression? Is, is there any such principle in, 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 in international refugee conventions or in domestic refugee law? No, there, there is nothing in the Refugee Convention of 1951 or the subsequent 1967 protocol, which says uh, it is the duty of a refugee to claim asylum in the first country that they enter after leaving their country of persecution. There are two points from that convention which might tend that way. First is a, a curious provision that in the Refugee Convention, Article 1, you're not a refugee until you are outside your country of nationality or ordinary residence. So if you Afghan person with an understandable, well-founded fear of persecution in Afghanistan, you don't become a refugee until you manage to get out of your country. And since most refugee-creating countries require visas, and you can't get a visa because you're a refugee per se, um, you somehow have to use illegal means to get out or deceive a carrier or get someone to transport you somewhere else. Uh, uh, and often you may be passing through a great many countries, but you have no idea that you're passing through them because you're on the back of a lorry. And so there's no such obligation. But in the case of France, and small boats, you're obviously outside a lorry because you're using a boat. You therefore would be in, uh, in a country which is considered safe. And uh, the, another provision, the Refugee Convention, says uh, talks about people coming directly from a place where there you have a fear of persecution, suggesting that if you've come indirectly or having established some residence in another country, then you that wouldn't apply to you. That's Article 31. So there are those two pointers to suggest um, that you, you, you only get the full protection of the convention if you're outside and you've come directly. There's case law on what directly means, and a period of transit uh, is considered by our, our judges uh, not not to uh, amount to acquiring um, a residence or, or, or some status in another country which requires you to to, to um, seek asylum there, uh, but um, any significant stay in that country probably could, and you then cease to become directly. You referred um, to people coming over in lorries, clandestinely uh, concealed inside lorries, and. Uh, in the context of what you just said about the small boats crisis being a, a, a post-Brexit phenomenon, it was, of course, the case that before people were coming over in boats, they were being concealed in lorries and they were coming through through the tunnel under the water instead of above the water. So, And that was all going on before uh, we uh, left the EU. So can you just explain that, what you mean by why this is particularly a post-Brexit phenomenon? Well, I think you were asking me about small boats. Yes, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and, and that, that was my response, because small boats are 
launched from France. People were coming uh, in lorries from France uh, before. Yeah, well, they, they, they probably don't. They, they well, we, we don't know where they bought. Oh, them I lorries. see. Yes, I see. They, they yes. may bought them in Turkey. They may bought them in Iran. They may bought them in in in, in Belgium. Um, we, that's one of the problems. They 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 may they they may bought them just just outside the the Channel Tunnel, but. Um, if if they knew that or they could show that, then they would be on their way back again. I mean, the answer you gave to my question seems to me to be quite an important one, Nick, because there are two present political responses to small boats. And I think they're shared by the Labour Party as much as by the Conservative Party, although the rhetoric may be a little less sharp in the case of uh, Keir Starmer and others. But the, the, the two responses are these. First of all, um, these people or many of them are not genuine refugees, are people coming from Albania are essentially economic migrants, and that is said to apply to many other categories. Of course, that's a matter that can only be determined by the courts once they've got here. Uh, but the other is, isn't it, this idea that there's something objectionable. And one can understand, perhaps, the public's response. There's something objectionable about people passing through fairly slowly and spending time in perfectly safe countries, including France, um, and then getting in small boats to come across to the UK. It's quite difficult to, to explain to people who are interested in this issue but aren't lawyers why that's okay. I mean, if you're fleeing uh, a place of oppression because you don't feel safe there and you want to be, find yourself somewhere that is safe, why shouldn't you have to stay in France if you've been there several weeks waiting to get on a boat? Why should you have a right in international or domestic law uh, to come to the United Kingdom as a refugee in that situation? Linked to, to Ken's question, can you perhaps deal with this question, which I think is often not really well addressed in, in the media? Is, is there such a thing as an illegal asylum seeker? Right. OK. Um, answering the second question first, yes, I think there is such a thing as an illegal asylum seeker. That is someone who breaches the laws governing entry when they had an alternative to uh, get protection without breaching those laws. However, um, the fact that you have breached some laws in order to get to the United Kingdom does not make you an illegal asylum seeker, because for reasons I've given, um, you have to be illegal in order to have embarked upon the journey from a place of persecution in the first place. That's the crucial when point, I, isn't it? Yeah, when I want to, to um, alert judges to this uh, problem in the definition, when I was uh, at the bar, I would sometimes talk about a duty of mendacity, because until you've got out of your country by usually foul means, either employing an agent or lying or, or misrepresenting the nature of your journey in some way, uh, you, you would... Um, be stuck where you were and then do the decent thing and get persecuted and die, which, of course, um, is not very satisfactory from the point of view of protection. But the, the safe country, or the safe third country principle, although it's not written into the convention, which is, I think, the question you asked me, most governments, uh, certainly most governments in the, in the West, um, assert by reference to the coming directly principle, that there is a principle, uh, and then they um, legislate on that basis. Of course, when we were in the EU, there was a whole series of measures which governed um, the application of that principle. 
there was the convention, the so-called Dublin Conventions, as to who should determine the asylum claim within Europe. Um, there were then the reception directives to make sure that whilst your claim was being determined, you weren't left to be destitute, which would either result in um, inhuman treatment or lead you to voluntarily return to your own um, bad country and, 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 and breach of your human rights there. Thirdly, the procedures for what you need to do to have a fair determination, and, and, and most importantly, harmonised criteria um, as to who was a refugee and who was not. But of course, all that's suddenly gone now. Of course, any any first place of safety rule would particularly uh, suit the British government because unless you fly in, you can't get to Britain except through safe countries. No, well, we, we don't pretend to find too many uh, people in uh, Greenland or in the North Pole <laughs> claiming asylum, which is why the British government have been rather uh, pleased about this and why their numbers are pretty pretty small, really, in terms of the uh, the, the amount of headline space it comes to you can imagine Greece and Italy and Malta all facing the North African and uh, Middle Eastern littoral um, are getting real hundreds of thousands of people and they've been having to devise different ways of dealing with it. Greece um, unfortunately just failed to have a reception centre system that, that, that met with European standards which is why for a period at least you couldn't return people to Greece. Um, who had made it across to the UK? I mean, Nick, the, you, you touch on the on the on the geopolitical problem there. I mean, the, these numbers are vast; they're not going down. They will no doubt be exacerbated in the future by uh, increasing uh, swift climate change. And so, for for governments in countries which are desirable places to travel to, this is a genuine pressing problem. It's not just about sort of bigotry and uh, and xenophobia. It's a pressing problem for the community of nations as to how to deal with this phenomenon because it's not going away no it's 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 a real issue and it's been an issue i think for um 20 or 30 years um in different forms um but numbers have been much higher in the past than they are now i can recall um, in the 80s and 90s when we were, were dealing with a hundred thousand at one stage we even took in more than Germany, which historically has been the biggest um, place um, in the European Union to which asylum seekers turned. Uh, and I think we're down now to, well, it, it, things vary um, between 25 and 40,000, I think, a year. But of course, that's a significant number in itself. And, and government is entitled to think about how it should respond to those measures. Uh, and of course, that's what it's currently doing. You've mentioned uh, the, the situation in Greece uh, and Italy, European states, which have experienced uh, waves of, of immigration from, uh, from events in, in, in North Africa and the Middle East. Australia also, at one stage, faced uh, a so-called uh, boats crisis, I think. Um, can you just say about, a little bit about that and how Australia responded because it became a hugely uh, controversial political issue in Australia, didn't it? Yes. Well, I don't think they were um, ribbed vessels from Australia. I think Australia's um, uh, maritime uh, borders were such that these were um, 
freight vessels, proper proper um, seaworthy vessels, rather than old tugs just about to sort of sink. But Australia uh, moved to a a mandatory detention policy, um, putting everyone into detention irrespective of their circumstances, and that was extremely criticised by the international human rights community. Australia, of course, not party to the European Convention on Human Rights, which governs in the circumstances when you can detain and and how you can detain and who you can detain. Uh, And uh, Australia particularly were detaining children, um, which is... um, can, can, is, is contrary, really, to their obligations under the International Convention on the Rights of the Child. And so that was a particularly uh, contentious issue. And I think there was a time when a family escaped from detention and claimed asylum in the British um, consulate in uh, in Sydney at one stage to say, help me. Um, but the other thing that they did was um, they, uh, they outsourced... Um, asylum determination to some of the smaller islands which were in their economic sphere of influence. Uh, Nauru comes to mind, and one or two others. Um, But I think, by contrast with what I think we're going to get on to Rwanda, the the object of Nauru was largely that they would decide who was a refugee or not. And if you did become a refugee, you you were eligible still to come to Australia because Nauru would not be big enough to, to house a significant refugee population. So it was a filter system um, rather than a, 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 a simply um, say, go back, goodbye, and we'll never see you again. Um, uh, but um, Australia simply had the Refugee Convention, which was a little light about some of the incidental things that can happen in the asylum process, whereas in the European uh, context, we have the European Convention on Human Rights, which is um, uh, says more and more about these issues, about when you can expel and, and, and how and when you can detain. Uh, and um, we equally have um, European legislations about people trafficking, which is also giving rise to some short-term protection claims at the moment in Europe, in the UK. Let's move on um, to the uh, the Rwanda policy and the recent uh, litigation, uh, giving, which led to the judgment in the Divisional Court last December, upholding the policy of uh, removing certain categories of asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda to have their asylum claims determined there. And that that process, this policy, involves in effect two decisions. Firstly, a decision that the asylum claim is inadmissible. In other words, the claim should not be decided on its merits in the UK. And then secondly, and consequentially, a decision to remove the asylum claimant to a safe third country, in this case, Rwanda. Uh, And the position is that um, the UK government uh, concluded uh, a so-called migration and economic development partnership agreement uh, and a memorandum of understanding with the government of Rwanda uh, back in April 2022. That understanding, that partnership agreement is in force, I believe, for some five years. 
Uh, and that has been the basis for uh, this policy, as I say, uh, authorizing the removal from the UK to Rwanda of certain individuals. It, it's a, a very lengthy judgment handed down by the divisional court. It's some 139 pages. And although the, um, the, the court upheld the basic legality of the policy, it quashed the actual decisions in the individual cases before it and identified numerous errors uh, in the decision-making process, which on the face of it expose the, uh, which seems to me, having read it, extraordinarily poor process um, for, for decision-making. Um, but Nick, um, with that introduction, and bearing in mind our audience is not exclusively lawyers, what, 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 what are the key features of the judgment in terms of um, the analysis of the legality of the policy? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, the, the first central feature is the cause of saying that the Secretary of State was entitled to conclude that returning people or sending people, not returning because they've never been there, no, never sending been there. people from um, the United Kingdom who've entered from France on small boats, since that's the class of people we're dealing with, to Rwanda did not expose them to a risk of persecution for race, religion, um, ethnicity, membership of political social group and, and, and such like, convention reasons for persecution, or expose them to harm contrary to Article 3 of the European Convention, uh, being subjected to torture, inhuman or degrading treatment. So if there were no risks of that, and of course, the problem for the claimants is there was no experience of anyone um, in this situation being sent to Rwanda. Yes. Rwanda, uh, like many African nations, had a history of taking in uh, large numbers of its neighbours who may have been subjected to the hardships of civil war or persecution of ethnic and other grounds, but it hasn't had a tradition of accepting people from Albania, Afghanistan, Syria, and from Iran, wherever else um, these claimants have come. We've, we've, I think we've talked about some of the Albanians, but I think from what I've seen that some of these people and some of the claimants in these cases weren't Albanians, but they came from other difficult zones in the Middle East. Yes, it, yeah, they, they came from Iraq uh, and Syria, and there's one from Vietnam. Iraq and Syria, yeah. absolutely so. So if we just focus upon that, um, there was simply no experience as to how um, Rwanda would process their claims, the criteria that they would use, and what they would do. Oh, just, I'm sorry Nick, uh, to interrupt you there, but I, I thought, and there's reference to this in the judgment, hadn't Israel uh, struck a similar deal with Rwanda uh, to, to effectively delegate the asylum process to Rwanda? There, there was a reference to it, um, to that happening. I, I must say I don't know much about that particular uh, uh, measure, um, and I wasn't entirely sure whether it was exactly analogous, but it makes the point, and the divisional court makes the point, that there is nothing contrary to the Refugee Convention or indeed to the Strasbourg, the Human Rights Convention, 
of sending people who have a protection claim, we'll call it, to somewhere else for that claim to be determined, as long as they are not being sent to where they're being persecuted, either directly or indirectly. And that's been a principle which has been litigated for many years, but often they're decided on the facts by judges in the first tier or upper tribunal. This was done on judicial review. So the question is not, uh, do they have individual well-founded fear of persecution or would they actually face a risk of, of harm in Rwanda? But was the Secretary of State entitled to conclude that having looked at the matter, there was in general no risk? And a powerful factor, if I can just add this, in the Secretary of State's case, is they were paying Rwanda a very large sum of money, 120 million pounds, in order to, um, as it were, to, to take on the burden of, of, of processing these cases. And that was said to be an incentive for Rwanda to comply with what um, they said they would do, rather than uh, take the money and run. And um, and dump these people without proceedings of the cases. So that was the, the nature of the challenge that the claimants faced, uh, and, and the, the court was unpersuaded on those key issues of policy that there was anything wrong with the Secretary of State's approach, and they rejected some of the other legal arguments that were made. I mean, the judgment's all very well and good, the, the 139 pages, it's certainly very long, but the, the real issue here is, isn't it, is a political one, because it doesn't matter how many judgments you get in the High Court in the Home Secretary's favor. The question is whether the policy is going to work or not. And only a couple of days ago, Andrew Mitchell, uh, who's Minister for in International Development and a member of Rishi Sunak's cabinet, told Andrew Neil on, on, on television, on Sky, I think, maybe in Channel 4, uh, that this policy could only ever encompass a very small number uh, of individuals and wasn't an answer to the pressing geopolitical problem of uh, mass uh, people movement ar around the world. And that, that's got to be right, hasn't it? I mean, there are all sorts of other associated difficulties with this, this policy. I understand most of the carriers who were going to transport these people have pulled out. Uh, no one really wants to be involved with the policy or wants to have their brand tarnished by it. It's only ever going to deal with very small numbers of people. It's really, it seems to me, public policy is political gesture rather than a public policy that's seriously designed and, 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 and is believed by the government to be capable of solving a very serious yeah. uh, problem. Well, I, I'm not going to comment upon the, the politics of all this because that's not my function um, or, indeed, or, or indeed the morality of, of it. I mean, uh, it, it, uh, the, the, it's, a, it's a remarkable new departure from the United Kingdom. Um, previously, we've sent people back to countries from which they come or they're, you know, quite similar countries um, with assurances or otherwise. Uh, but to send someone from Iraq to Rwanda where they have no previous connection, it, it, it certainly makes one think about what's going on. Um, it, it, it's going to cost a, a lot of money. And of course, one wonders if that money might have been spent doing a deal with France to take them back in the first place, which would be, be the short-term fix for the United Kingdom, though not, I accept, a, a, a long-term fix for the European Union as a whole. And the European Union as a whole, um, of which we're no longer the member, uh, has to decide how we're going to deal with it. And I, I imagine they will be looking at safe 
areas um, on the North African littoral or elsewhere um, where they could do processing of people who have no other family claim to come into the United Kingdom. One of the problems is, of course, is that when children are trying to join their parents or parents trying to join children or siblings trying to join other people, um, that perhaps needs to be factored into a fair and balanced system, simply saying, if you came in a small boat, you're out, whatever your ties are with the United Kingdom. But I agree, those are policy issues, ultimately, which are for the, the government of the day to take and, 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 and not for, um, for, for judges to adjudicate upon. Um, uh, whether it will work, um, well, well, we'll just have to see. But Well, maybe they should focus more on whether it works. I mean, my question is, lots of these people will have already made extremely arduous journeys, are very desperate to get to the United Kingdom. What's to stop them walking out of Rwanda, making their way back up through Africa, across Europe, and back to the Channel again? And I think the answer to that is not very much. So I think, I think it's just depressing that the government... Uh, one can see the political advantages of this policy, and one can see that it's popular amongst you know some members of the electorate. But to be expending so much of our international reputation, it seems to me, and you probably won't comment on this, Nick, on a policy that is simply not going to work, seems to me to be foolish. Uh, I, I, it, it looks, on the first blush, extremely harsh. Um, for, for the reasons I've described. It's people who don't have any experience of life in Rwanda. But as I say, um, that may not, and it has not so far led to uh, ill treatment of the sort that would prevent it from being implemented as, on legal grounds. Those legal grounds are there. And if there was evidence that um, people really were not being treated as they're meant to be, then there may be a basis for a challenge again. There is another point, um, but um, you, you're going to ask me another question. I'll hold it. But I mean, um, uh, you, you mentioned in the early introduction that the actual procedural individual decisions as to whether it was appropriate for these people to be sent were flawed and were quashed. And I must say, that does rather suggest that the European Court of Human Rights got it right when it issued a request for these removals to be stayed until the end of the process when you can see whether there were any legal grounds rather than in advance of that. I was going to come on to the ECHR aspect to it. I mean, you, you've summarised the outcome of, of the judgment. And as you say, you, it's, it's a judicial review challenge rather than a, a review of the individual merits of the claim. So although the court has quashed uh, all of the individual claimants' cases and required the decisions to be taken again. It didn't actually look and decide, uh, as you say, the individual merits. So it, in effect, I think what you've said is that the, on the two real issues in the case, in other words, was the Secretary of State's conclusion that Rwanda was a safe third country based on sufficient evidence and a thorough assessment, on that issue, the court has said no basis to challenge the Secretary of State's conclusion. And, and then secondly, could the Secretary of State lawfully conclude that arrangements governing relocation to Rwanda would not give rise to a risk of, I think the term is refoulement, or return to uh, ill treatment contrary to Article 3? So on those two issues, uh, the claimants failed. But as you say, the background in terms of the ECHR was that the, uh, an interim measures injunction was granted back, I think, in June of last year, which prevented um, 
the plane taking off uh, carrying anyone to Rwanda. Uh, and I think the Secretary of State has said, until this legal process is concluded, um, there will be no, no one sent to Rwanda. And that process of, of legal challenge could last for another uh, year, uh, potentially. But it's, it's led to uh, a hugely political crisis in, with the government even now threatening to withdraw from the ECHR if ultimately uh, these uh, claimants succeed uh, in, uh, in a, a challenge in Strasbourg, having failed in the UK. Which leads on to the, the question, which I've slightly set up in a long way, but the, the real question is, it, it, is the ECHR... Uh, and the case law that's built up around it, likely to be, in your view, uh, likely to mean it is impossible to to deport people effectively or to delegate the asylum process to a, to a third country like Rwanda? Uh, no, the case law, um, uh, and they cite a 2019 case from Hungary, says you can send people to a third country as long as you take a very day great deal of care about who you're sending and whether they have a particular vulnerability there as children or otherwise uh, to which country what are their procedures what are their incentives to comply with what you can't do says the Strasbourg court when ruling against Hungary in that case will simply say oh Serbia signs the refugee convention therefore off we go we'll send you off Serbia. We did that right in the very first of the cases that um, that came to the United Kingdom in 1978, a case called Musisi, when the British government said we can send all um, uh, people from Uganda to Kenya, and um, because Kenya signs the Refugee Convention, and the House of Lords said no, that's not good enough. We need a very anxious scrutiny. So in fact. The very same test that Strasbourg gave us uh, for adjudicating on this issue in 2019, which is referred to in the Divisional Court case, was foreshadowed by Lord Bridge in 1989 in the case of Musisi, anxious scrutiny. And it has to be said that the government has spent a lot of time and resources on this Rwanda bill, unlike uh, the other governments. So you can do it, but what you really can't do is to expose people to a risk of really serious harm by one means or another in the way they are treated whilst their claims are being processed, the product of their processing, uh, and the risk of being sent back to a horrendous place. And of course, it was again, going back in history, it was the British who um, set that ball rolling in Strasbourg when um, a long time ago, in the late 80s, um, a, there was a failed coup in Morocco. A general fled by helicopter to Gibraltar and said, I want to seek asylum. Um, that was going to rather embarrass relations between the United Kingdom and Morocco. So within a matter of hours, he was put back on the um, plane to Morocco, where as it was blatantly obvious he was tortured and then shot within 48 hours and his widow then sued the British government and they settled the case. So it was our <laughs> conduct then which set this ball rolling, which led to the Article 3 case law, which of course is now fundamental and, and, and also is reflected in the UN Convention Against Torture, Article 3 of the UN Convention says you must not send anyone to a place where there are 
well-founded um, risk of torture. Yeah, and that's that, that's obviously right, and it's a very sound sound principle that ought to be ought to be adhered to uh, in all circumstances. I mean, Nick, I've made clear my my own view of the likely efficacy of the Miranda solution. So I think our final question really is: Is there a legislative solution to bring a halt to further crossings? Is there some magic bullet? Is the government really able at all to legislate its way out of this problem, or is this really an issue that has to be resolved by negotiations between friendly, uh, cooperative, and constructive states? I, I, I'm sure that um, ultimately um, this needs a harmonised approach with um, um, states inside Europe and, and, and elsewhere who subscribe to the protection principle and are not just um, mere signatories to the Refugee Convention or the Convention Against Torture, but active and effective appliers of those conventions. Um, there are, in the meantime, some legislative solutions, but they've got to really be based on a sound understanding of the law and of the international obligations involved. We've talked about the Rwanda judgment. About a year previously, there were two decisions about small boats cases uh, when they had people had been prosecuted for coming across on small boats on the basis because they didn't hold an entry clearance, they were seeking to enter the United Kingdom unlawfully. Well, the, that was completely a, a, a ludicrous misreading of the law. The law had been established a few years earlier in a House of Lords case, so quite a few years earlier, um, saying um, you only become an illegal entrant and commit an offence of illegal entry if you intend to evade immigration control. And most of these people on small boats will be more than delighted to meet an immigration officer on a Coast Guard vessel and say, I want to claim asylum, because that, that, that their perilous journey comes to an, uh, an end, and then they enter the process. I'd like to meet the prosecutor. <laughs> yes, well, I'm sure you'd well. have <laughs> an interesting conversation. Perhaps another a future guest on this program. <laughs> yeah, but um, we we are, we are yet to understand uh, uh, and be told what the uh, future legislative plans are, which are presumably intended to be um, even more extreme than the Rwanda policy. So, so far, the government has, has won its its policy of sending to Rwanda uh, has been upheld as lawful. But I mean, it's difficult to see on the basis of what you've said, what these proposals could be uh, that could be compatible um, with the convention case law, a policy that's even more strict. I mean, you're not allowed, you can't have the Royal Navy intercepting boats in the middle of the channel and, and, and towing them back to France. I mean, is that would that be lawful? Well, well, we already had that as a as a, a provision in a recent piece of legislation, which was knocked out by the Lords, and the government accepted it as being knocked out largely on the grounds that it would be too dangerous. I mean, I don't think they will necessarily worry too much about the conventions, Nick. I think we may see something dramatic in time for the next election, such as anyone who arrives in a small boat will be denied asylum. I think I think they'll go for something very simple, very populist, pretty brutal, um, and that's my fear. I may be wrong. I hope I am wrong. Well, um, as I say, there are limits. Um, the, the, the international conventions permit um, a return to safe third countries, but there are limits to that. And I suspect that the, the points where there will be legitimate uh, legal challenges may be around the period of detention and the circumstances of detention until these removals take place about the question of young children 
uh, and unaccompanied minors uh, and people who might be coming um, here uh, without coming through France, but coming on a longer journey from a really dangerous place. And that would then um, raise other aspects of the convention. Well, Nick, thank you very much. It's It's been an interesting discussion. Uh, and uh, who knows, as and when we discover what the government's future plans are, we may uh, try and get you back. Um, to assess the legality of that, if that's something you are able to comment on, given your uh, current judicial position. I'm sure that other people will be giving rulings upon that rather than simply opinions of an old, uh, an old practice. But um, <laughs> any, anything else I can do to help, I'll be happy to do so. Nick, it's been a really fascinating and, and informative discussion. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you both. Thank you. You've been listening to Double Jeopardy, the law and politics podcast with me, Ken MacDonald, uh, and Tim Owen. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and, and if you did, uh, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Share it with your friends and give us a review. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and we hope to see you again soon. As ever, our editor uh, is Billy Lawrence. And our social media advisor is Jess Jones. We'll see you soon.